Hello, listeners, and welcome back to the Religious Studies Project. It's Monday, so you know what that means. We have another new episode for you today. Well, it's new of sorts. Last year, I had the great pleasure of speaking with Sam Gill about his recent book, The Proper Study of Religion, Building on Jonathan Z. Smith, which was published by Oxford University Press in 2020. In this episode, we explore different methodological and theoretical approaches. We discuss questions of definition, Smith's comparative approaches, notions of difference and authenticity, story tracking, as well as play and movement in the study of religion. This is quite an interesting discussion, if I do say so myself. And Sam provides us with great insight for those looking to learn a little more about Smith's work or how they could build on and further his approaches in their own research. So let's take it away. Hello and welcome. Today I am joined by Sam Gill, who is Professor Emeritus of the University of Colorado Boulder. And we are here today to discuss your recent book, The Proper Study of Religion, Building on Jonathan Z. Smith. Now, if I'm not mistaken, this is your first appearance at the RSP, is that correct? That's right. Well, I'm very happy to have you here. Well, I'm delighted to be here. Thank you. Of course. You know, you you cover so much in this book, and it's quite an exciting study of Smith's work and his contribution to the field of religious studies. But I think it would be great to just start with the proper study of religion. What is it that you mean by the proper study of religion? (laughs) Uh, Well, thank you for asking that. That's um, I had a little time struggling with what would be the proper title because I thought the word proper sounded a little bit British, (laughs) you know, like proper etiquette and so forth. But I think Smith has actually used that word. And what I really mean by that is a basically secular study of religion, not a religious study of religion. So in the U.S., that began with a Supreme Court decision in 1963 that allowed state-supported universities to study religion without violating the Constitution. Immediately after that, there was an explosion of departments of religion all over the country. It went from just a few to nearly 200 right away. And that then lineage is what we have uh, experienced since 1963 to now. I don't think we've really accomplished what I would call a proper study of religion because the early days of the secular, the state-sponsored study of religion was populated by faculty that were seminary trained and that were from religious institutions. And that gave then a kind of bias towards seeing religion from a basically Christian Protestant perspective. And it's only been through then all of these decades that those early folks have finally left the field and it's begun then to be take a shape that is maybe more proper to a, to a secular environment. So what I wanted to do was to suggest that Smith all along has understood what a proper study of religion should be. And while he addressed it explicitly in some cases, it was implicit in almost everything he did. So that uh, what I felt was valuable after his death in 2017 was to collect gather together some of those uh, hints that he gave along the way, and then to a little bit more formally review those in terms of my own work in order to attempt to state some of the basic views, some of the basic principles that are important for what I believe to be a proper study of religion. Excellent. Excellent. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, because it, it makes me think, too, of, of sort of the critical approach that he has, particularly when studying late antiquity, early Christianity, things that people might more commonly associate with with a, a seminary program or a theology degree, whereas we see in other subfields that that slightly more theological tendency is is actually more present rather than in the work of someone like Smith or Burton Mack, who I know you also mentioned too, sort of in referencing Smith's approach. Right. Yeah, I think Burton Mack's view on the early Smith is one of the most cogent statements of what a proper study of religion ought to be. And it, that was in his first impressions of meeting Jonathan Smith back in the day. Nice. I don't think I knew that, actually. 
So one thing that you do in the book is kind of work through some key aspects of Smith's approach and methodology, right, for the academic study of religion, looking at issues of definition, comparison, the category of religion, and so on. And so I thought it might be nice to kind of work through some of those key points, because it would help for those who who aren't familiar with Smith or who have only read a little bit of his work. I think it would be very helpful to talk about those key aspects of his contribution, because you really do unpack that throughout the course of the book. We can start with definition, since I know it is the the first chapter. Definition of religion? Oh, fine. Sure. (laughs) The hot topic, right? Yeah, (laughs) it's a good it's a good topic to begin. Smith says if we don't uh, if we if we don't understand what um, we mean by the title of the field that we're in, then we have a problem. So the issue is really what is religion. Smith did offer some sorts of definitions along the way, and frankly, the definition that he gives, which is based on creating worlds of meaning, I've never really been all that satisfied with. So uh, he does make a uh, he, he makes several important contexts in order to talk about religion. And, and so let me just talk about a couple of those and then give you my own take on how I've been inspired by Smith to talk about how we define religion. He really saw it as a, a distinction between an academic understanding of religion and religions, plural, as they exist in the world. So he really felt that Religion as an academic topic was the invention of the academy. I think it's also the invention of popular culture because we use the word religion widely when, uh, in culture to refer to all kinds of things. So that with the globalization of popular culture, then everybody uses the word religion and in the singular sense. I don't think that the academic study of religion has influenced that very much, actually. But we have this then global possibility. All the people that have ever lived are possible uh, sources for then the study of religion. And as we then begin to articulate some elements within the cultures of all those peoples that we want to focus on, that's what we understand as religion. Articulating that is much more difficult. I think that it's been typical to try to come up with a definitive statement of what religion is, and short of that, to attempt to come up with a working definition of religion. But I think all of those suggest then that we can actually define religion and that there is then some end goal that we have in the study of religion. And I tend to reject that. To me, what we do is we have things we're interested in, we collect those under the term religion, and it's our discourse on how we collect those things and how we understand those things that keeps us going over time. So to me, better than a definition, then I think we should have conversations and accounts by which we then articulate our understandings of religion. And that would be much more satisfying than this kind of prickly arguments over your definition versus my definition and so forth. We often start uh, introductory courses by saying, okay, for this course, for the purposes of this course, we're going to use this definition of religion. And I think that's just, uh, that's, that's a horrible approach. A model that I really like for this definitional, definitional issue is the way we treat color term. So we, for a whole lot of reasons, we cannot really define a color term. We can talk about its usage, but we can't really define it in any sort of final way. We can talk about uh, light waves on the spectrum, but even even the division of that is up for discussion. There's a psychological dimension. There's a biological dimension. There's a historical dimension. There's a taste dimension. There's a personal dimension. All of those kinds of things go into how we understand our use of color terms. And we're often very fluid about that. Now, I had a conversation with my very young grandson one day when I was thinking about this. We were talking about the word red, and he was very happy to use things like sort of red, kind of red, reddish. And as you can see, he had this kind of fluid understanding of what is red, but it didn't bother him that he couldn't just absolutely define it. So I think that we should sort of use religion-ish 
as a as a kind of an approach to definition rather than some concrete stable we got to all agree upon it definition so the the basic things then is the data that are possible for religion is really global anything is possible smith made that very clear there are no there are no given natural data that are religious but anything that we can observe anything that we can find in culture is a possibility for us so so there is that then the way we do it is really an academic issue, not uh, whether it corresponds with the views of the folks that we're studying. And that then becomes really a way that we reflect on who we are as human beings. So that when I, when I look particularly in the context of the secular study of religion or the proper study of religion, then it's really key that what we're really trying to understand is an aspect of being human. There is no a spiritual dimension that's part of the academic study. There is no special knowledge. There's no special insight. It's a purely academic study. It belongs in the humanities, the social sciences, and even the natural sciences. So contrary to the struggles that we had when I was in graduate school myself, which was like, oh, well, you have to have this sort of special insight, you know, this, this kind of special knowledge, or you have to be religious yourself in order to understand religion. That all needs to go away in a proper, proper academic study. You know, what, what stands out to me and sort of my own take on it, right, because, of course, I'm just interpreting what you're saying through my own through my own lens, right, is is that this color term kind of understanding. It's a very social way of approaching religion in the sense that it's not about how one might personally identify or about weighing truth claims, but rather looking at claims of religion, not in a way to, you know, promote or delegitimize them, but in a way that just evaluates how they're being used, when they're being used, sort of what's at stake in those moments, which can then, of course, tie into, you know, claims about spirituality or other aspects that people do tend to study. But I think one often critique is that either there's no clear definition or that it is a way to dismiss religious adherence, quote unquote. And what you're saying, at least to me, sounds like it's it's really just trying to shift the perspective. Does that does that sound right to you? Yeah, that sounds right. So so to me, we don't dismiss religious adherence. They become the data that we are interested in. So if somebody claims some special knowledge and some special insight or some revelation or something that comes from some other realm, then we're, of course, very interested in that, but as data, not as the, what informs our definition. I think that that makes a lot of sense and hopefully also can provide clarity because I know that a big contention with Smith is that he never you know, really clearly defines religion. When I think there's a certain idea about definition that people have in mind when they're looking for that right, right, type right. of explanation, but... Yes. But that's sort of also kind of what Smith is poking at a little bit. Well, the, the theme that sort of goes through my whole book is that Smith had much more interested in incongruity and dissonance than in congruity. So if you were to propose a definition of religion, he would want to sort of take issue with that because that sort of opposes what he feels is most interesting in human life. And that is that we seek coherence, but we live in incoherence. <laughs> yes. <laughs> That's the truth, isn't it? Yeah, for sure. <laughs> well, I guess we could, since we are kind of on this, maybe explore a little bit more about incongruity, because I know you do talk about that in more detail with regard to experience. It's a little bit later, but this seems like a nice segue. Yeah, incongruity really runs through the whole book. My own work on that has now taken shape in my study of movement, human self-moving, and it also has a biological base. And I'm just now finishing up a pretty extensive manuscript in which I attempt to understand sort of the biological foundations of all of this sense of congruity and incongruity, how that how that functions and operates in human life. For Smith, I, I think it was uh, initially, historically, a kind of reaction to his early colleague, Mircea Eliade, who was also my teacher, who wanted to like fix everything. It was that religion was equal to the center, to the origin points, 
And Smith did not find that to be of any interest. It was top down. It was a way of organizing vast amounts of data, but not in any way that he found of much interest. So he countered then Iliadi by saying, you know, chaos is more interesting than is order. Being out of place is more interesting than being in place. It gives us a lot more to talk about, a lot of questions. So what's going on when things don't fit? So that developed, I think, throughout Smith's whole career, and it occurs in almost everything he does. So his, his views of myth and ritual and comparison and even his definition of religion and so forth have that sense of it's a negotiative process. It's a process of application. It's a process of ongoingness. And that just really occurs everywhere, everywhere he looks. I spent a lot of time reviewing his work on Frazier's The Golden Bow, which was his Yale PhD dissertation. Very few people that I know have looked at that aspect of Smith's work. He only ever really published one article out of his dissertation, unlike most of us who <laughs> eventually try to publish our dissertations. And he often said that he didn't think that the world really needed to see his work on Fraser. But I really feel like it's very fundamental to what he does. Yeah. And so what he did was uh, study Fraser's mini-volume work, The Golden Bow, in order to try to understand what the heck Fraser was about. And at every turn, it ju he just found himself wallowing in Fraser's incongruity. He couldn't really make up his mind what he was doing, why he was doing all this collecting of material and trying to put it together. And I think that Smith began over the six years that he worked on that project to realize how fundamentally vitalizing the whole notion of incongruity really is. So it's, it's in the face of incongruity that questions arise, that hypotheses take shape, that we are driven to ask the questions that take us to the next stage, and that never ends. It just keeps going. And, th and I think he saw that not only within the academic study of religion, but he also saw that as part of what religions themselves are about. So his views of myth, for example, which I think much more strongly than his views of ritual, exemplify this. Myth for him was an ongoing story that always changes, but it changes in the process of it ap applying to the exigencies of life wherever it occurs. So that it's in that attempt to make the tradition fit the needs of the moment that religion is its most vital. That's where it exists. That's where its energy is. And so that pervades, then, I think, everything that the Smith did. So he loved things like gaps. He loved things like jokes. He loved things like puzzles. He loved things like puns. He loved things that always raised more questions than they answered. And I think that frustrated a lot of people because they think academics should make sense and give final answers. And exactly. Smith was just never really interested in doing that. Yeah, I think at least, you know, in my reading of, of his work, he really liked to dwell in that in-between space and, and not have things just presented and tied up in a bow. So it's like, here's our answer. Now we can move on because that's that's exactly. not how it works. Yeah, that's not how it works. And I think, again, that's the incongruity is where his method of a comparison really takes shape because he has a really interesting, at least in my mind, a very interesting way of approaching comparison. I wonder if you could talk a little about that. And then also, as you at least kind of outlined it in the book, this underlying energetics, was it, of his, his comparative process? Sure. I have a whole chapter on comparison in the book. But then there are also, <laughs> it almost seems redundant, but there are also quite a number of other little sections and other chapters that deal with comparison. So that comparison is really fundamental and central yeah. for Smith's work. Uh, he wrote a number of articles on it and referred to it quite constantly. An important uh, dimension of what he did was to suggest that comparison is to put two things together and sort of see what happens. But he insisted that this wasn't a part of nature. We weren't just like discovering something that already exists in nature. But we have an interest when we put two things together so that instead of just the two things, there's a third thing, which is the interest and perspective and uh, the, the reason for doing it that comes from the person that's doing the comparison. So when he put then the two things together, 
it's it, it really is just uh, a sense of the interplay between the two that then he feels is energizing. And it informs then the perspective that is being brought by the person that's doing the comparison. So that 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 sort of tripartite understanding of comparison is really fundamental for him. What I find really interesting when I analyze a lot of his work on comparison, which I really did, there seems to me to be sort of two large domains of comparison that he used himself. One was what he did for six years with uh, Fraser's work, which basically was to say, okay, Fraser gives this example. And in Fraser's many volumes, he gave like 100,000 examples. So it was vast. So he gave this example and he cites this source. So Smith takes the example from Fraser's uh, work, The Golden Bough, and he looks up the source and he says, how accurate is this? So it's a, it's a very simple kind of comparison. It's like fact-checking or text criticism. It's, it's a fundamental kind of academic method. And that is an actually kind of objective approach to comparison. You get an answer there. Either he cited it correctly or he cited it partially correctly and made up some of it. Or he made it a pole cloth and just cited the source as an excuse to connect it somewhere. And so Smith's work then has that, and he practiced that extensively. He, he criticized Fraser a very extensively. I mean, six years of that kind of work. That's just, that's drudgery work. And he also did that with Iliadi. Uh, so he looked through Iliadi's work and did that same sort of comparison. But then he also has what I would call a sort of heuristic subjectivist understanding of comparison, which is you put two things together and see what happens. And instead of that producing some concrete objective answer, it often gives rise then to whole questions of, you know, is this, what, what about typology? What about category? What about definition? What about assumptions? Or even what about truth? What's the nature of truth? So the important thing then is to see that Smith had a fairly complex understanding of comparison as he practiced it. Now his own work then surveyed historically all kinds of ways of doing comparison. And what is fascinating to me in terms of sort of the history of the use of comparison in a proper academic study religion is that Smith criticized often harshly almost all methods of comparison. And I think that he had the effect then on many scholars of saying, oh, well, hell, let's not compare. You know, this is too hard. You can't do it. You can't, you know, Smith is going to kill me if I try this. And thus, I think that where his work should have encouraged a very rich tradition of comparison, I think he served to sort of shut it down. So that people then said, "Uh-oh, I shouldn't really do that," uh, and and that's one of the one of the things I wanted to lift up in this book was to say, you know, despite Smith's penchant for sort of criticizing everything, what he really does is to lay the foundation for a very rich practice of comparison in a lot of different situations. And I think, too, a key sort of takeaway of his critiques of comparison is really to emphasize the fact that it's not going to result in a clear-cut answer. All of his critiques in, in talking about the difficulty of them or the you know failures of comparative approaches really serves to demonstrate that. And I think as a reminder that there's always going to be some sort of discrepancy, there's always going to be some sort of and congruity, right? Well, I, I I would cast it in more positive terms rather than to say, oh, it's not going to quite do this. I don't think that was his objective ever in the first place. So mm -hmm. the distinction I make is between a limited objective comparison, which he did plenty of, yeah. and a subjective heuristic comparison, which doesn't have the same goals. The, the, the limited goal is to say, sure. yeah, let's determine whether this is accurate or not. And he actually even sometimes did, I mean, he would analyze like 100 examples that Fraser used for one particular category and break it down by percentages, which you would never expect of Smith. 
You know, it's like, mm-hmm. well, yeah. 70% of the time he totally made it up, you know. Uh, but then he had this other whole notion of comparison, which I refer to as the necessary double face. It's, it's to see that you can't have just one perspective and not another. It's in the dynamic relationship between these two. And it's in the certainty that we can't collapse them, that it gains its power and energy to just keep going. I refer to that in my own work as an aesthetic of impossibles. So the premise behind comparison is you put two things together and you call them the same. Otherwise, they wouldn't be comparable. But you know at the outset, they aren't the same and they never will be. Mm -hmm. So that's an impossible condition. They are the same, but they are not the same. But Smith's insight was, and I think he drew it from Fraser, actually, that that's what generates vitality and excitement and questions and the ongoingness of the field that I would call a proper study of religion. That's not just exclusive to comparison. That's shot through everything in human life, actually. And that's kind of my work is to go there. That's why I think you use uh, jokes so often, because you know a joke is to put two things together that you call the same, but you know they aren't. And the fascinating thing about joke is you don't explain it. If you don't get it, you don't get it. If you try to explain it, you ruin it, you know? And you don't say what a joke means. You just laugh or you don't laugh, you know? So so he loved that kind of thing, you know? And he also loved loved riddles, I think. Mm -hmm. And, And the fascinating thing about this structure of a riddle is that riddle is often asking a question, you know, how can this be that? knowing that it isn't. Yeah. And when you get it, you don't explain it. You sort of marvel at the fact that you're able to see two different things that aren't the same that are the same. And yeah. and, and and we kind of take pride in that. It's like, oh, yeah, I, I got that. Isn't that cool? So to me, that was that was much of the thrust of what he did in all of his work. And it's that kind of characterization that ought to be exploited and incorporated into the ongoing proper academic study of religion. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And this is something that you've talked about a bit, uh, I mean, in your own work and something that came up too at that conference that we were at in Norway is the playfulness of Smith in his work. Absolutely. Because it's, it's yeah. very much there in his writings. There are those sort of aha moments, I think, as you read through where, again, you're just kind of surprised by like, oh, wait, yes. These comparisons create a space for new questions or ways of of approaching different things. So I think if we could talk a little bit about the sort of playfulness of Smith, particularly with the category of religion, as you discuss also in the book. And I know it it does certainly tie into some of your own work. Sure. Well, I I have a whole chapter on play in the book. And a little of my own history there is... When I was studying Native American way back in the day, decades and decades ago, I got really interested in masking. And I had drafted an essay. I think I still have it somewhere. I never published it. It was called Dancing the Faces of the Gods. And so what was fascinating to me about masks was how completely artificial and obvious the mask is. So in Native American cultures, they're often awkward, wooden, heavy faces that stand before the face of someone else. So there is this sense then of you have the one face, but you have the other face. One is the mask, the other is the masker, and yet it's not a disguise. So the the difference between disguise and mask is disguise, you become something that everybody misunderstands is something else. But a mask is always a face in front of a face and everybody knows it. But you refer to it not as the masker, but rather as the entity being represented. So so there is this doubleness that always exists there. And I got super fascinated with that doubleness. And it's like, well, how do we really understand that double facedness? It's like it's like the sock and buskin uh, masks of theater that are present from Greek theater. And that still exemplify theater today, you know, the the comedy and tragedy masks that we often associate with theater. And so I began to see 
And instead of uh, resolving those two different faces into one face, masking has its power because of the interplay between the two. And that got me then very interested in play. So I, I abandoned the whole discussion of masking <laughs> for a long time and took off on the discussion of play, which I found just absolutely fascinating, but so frustrating because I think we are conditioned to want to resolve everything. We want to be able to say, oh, this is how it works. That's it. And, and we've got it. And with play, I could never get it to resolve. It just wouldn't. The play then always goes on. If you, if you stop play because you think you've understood it, then you've already ended play. And there's this wonderful passage that I often quote of Derrida where he says there are two interpretations of interpretation. One is to stop the play and one is to keep the play going. Which do you choose? And then he says, well, you can't choose either because either choice would stop the play of the issue. So, so, so you don't stop it. It is always ongoing. And it's in that insight then that I began to discover that not only did this characterize what Smith does, but he did it explicitly and from the beginning. So his very work on Fraser was to see Fraser at play. And he uses that explicitly in his doctoral thesis his, from Yale. And, and so he has this whole language of discussion that is based on ludic activity and is based on play. And that appears not as a major kind of language in Smith's work throughout, but it's constantly there. And so uh, in this one chapter in the book, I simply look through a lot of Smith's work and lift out those examples where he explicitly uses the term play. And in that notion of play, then that characterizes really, for me, what distinguishes Smith's ongoing core idea. Yeah. No, I think, I think that that makes a lot of sense, actually. And I think once you start considering that aspect of it, it's something that people, at least in my experience and talking with folks who haven't read much of Smith, I think they find it to be so dense and overwhelming that that sort of playful aspect of it is is lost. But I do think, yeah, I mean, if you're if you're kind of working through it, you see that it's very much there and and really, really quite clever in so many ways. I, you know, I have I've just heard in the last few years. I never heard that before. In the last few years, I've heard a lot of people say, oh, Smith is so dense and he contradicts himself all the time. And he says this and then that, and I don't understand it. And so therefore, I'm not going to look at Smith. And part of what I want to do in this book is to say, that is such a shallow reading of Smith. In a certain sense, it takes him too seriously because all those contradictions are, I think, very consciously present in Smith's intention and his work. So he slips between categories, uh, much like Jorge Borges does. He slips between categories and whole dimensions of reality. And you're reading along and suddenly you realize, oh, my God, I'm in a whole different realm than I thought I was. But that's what he intended, I think. That's the playfulness of his work, is that sort of slippage from this position to that position. He saw that as energizing, as yielding power rather than being frustrating. No. That was actually kind of exactly what I was going to say is that it's it to me when you're reading along and that happens it's like he's he's keeping you on your toes too, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, it always takes you back. You every time I've ever read Smith it's like, "Oh my god, I never saw that before." There's always something more there. It's like a good movie. If you you know, if you go to a movie and the end is all pat and wrapped up and so forth, and you say, oh, that was nice. I spent a couple hours and didn't have to think about everything else in my life. But a really good movie, then let you're thinking about it like months later saying, oh, my God, is this, was it that or whatever? And I think Smith's work is much that way. It's like a good movie. <laughs> it, well, it is, I think, because when I'm going back to reread his work in reference to something that I'm currently working on, you know, I'll certainly read it in a very particular way. But then there have been times where I go back to the same work for a different project. And suddenly I have a very different perspective and, and read of what he's saying. Of course, the underlying threads are there, but how I'm approaching it, given the sort of things that I'm thinking through myself, certainly affect how I read it and what I then draw out, um, which I, which is where I also find him uh, to just 
to be so thought provoking um, and, and his work, because it's not that it's a one size fits all, but that there's so many threads that one can pull in yes. different yes. In, in his different writings that it can work and be adapted in very productive ways. Right. Well, that's a, that's one of my big hopes in the book is to simply say, you know, you read Smith and be inspired by him. There's no limit to what he has to offer for us, you know, as we go forward. So so one idea that you set forth in your book is the story tracking, where you work through, you do a sort of story tracking of Eliada, of Smith. I wonder if you could explain what the story tracking is and why it's it's relevant to the work of both of these scholars and, and how you see that being particularly productive for the academic study of religion. Yes, I think it's actually a pretty... I wish that it had gained more attention over the years. I have had people let me know that they use this work a lot and that their students really appreciate it. So I am happy about that. What, uh, to tell you the story of that, I had used Eliade's example of Australian religion that had to do with Axis Mundi and his major things in a book of mine. And I had a, I had a scholar write to me and said, oh, by the way, I'm using that book and my students like it very much. But we looked up your sources and it doesn't seem like the sources really match what you what you did. It was like, oh, my God, this is the worst thing that could ever happen to me because my entire conditioning from Smith on is to check your sources. You know, that's, yeah, <laughs> that's, yeah, the, yeah. <laughs> that's the main damn lesson. So so it's like, uh, OK, that's really interesting. So. I immediately then decided I got to get to the bottom of this. And that turned into then what I think is fairly unusual in the study of religion, which is we take a scholar's uh, citation of a critical core example that's used as the principal source on which a whole understanding of religion, in this case, rests. And we go to that, we go as Smith did with Fraser, we go to his sources. But then unlike Smith, who was only happy to look at just the first level, we just keep going. So what I did was then I said, well, where did Eliade get this example? And I went to his sources and found, oh, my Lord, this is not just one little paragraph out of one book. It is little sections out of books that for that one edition, then another edition two decades later. And he's sort of glommed this all together. And he's most basically just concocted all that. So then I decided, well, I really need to get back to the actual Aboriginal who actually said this. So I kept going and going and going. I went to Australia. I went to the libraries. I looked up manuscripts. I looked up field notes. I looked up field journals. All, all this, you know, like the point where the ethnographer sitting there with his informant writing down little notes. And every stage all the way through. And so I realized as I did that, the closer that I got to the actual Aboriginal, the further away I got from what Eliade had said. So in a certain sense, Eliade and his source didn't correlate at all. Zero. And so my choice then was to say, oh, well, Eliade's a bad scholar. You know, what do we do? What's this going on? And I realized what you do when you do that which I called story tracking, is you create a story of how that scholar's interest comes about. So in a certain sense, it told me more about Iliadi than it did about Aborigines, but it also told me a lot about a whole process of scholarship. It told me about a process of how important Aboriginal studies were to the whole rise of the social sciences in the early part of the 20th century. So all of the major theories came out of the one book that was done at that time. And that's that was ultimately then Iliadi's source. So that what I began to do then was to say, oh well, this is this is really a story track that has some coherence that tells me a lot of stuff. But then when I did that, it's like, well, I should really try myself to say what the heck was going on with these aboriginals. And so I'd look then at the basic ethnographies, and my first my first inclination was to say, you know, there are four or five really accepted ethnographies. So in order for me to say, for my reader, they really need to understand something about them, 
So maybe I should just kind of like combine them all. And then I realized, well, wait a minute, that's I'm doing exactly what Eliade did. I'm concocting my own story among these all these disparate examples. And those people who did those ethnographies had their own stories. So then I divided it down so that I decided, okay, you can't really give the ethnography of a particular Aboriginal folk. You have to give the ethnography, uh, the story of each ethnographer, and each one yields a different Aboriginal perspective. <laughs> and there maybe is no real Aboriginal perspective. It's all uh, a creative encounter. So all of these things are creative encounters, and the only way to deal with them is through stories. So then I told then all these stories of the exploration of Central Australia, the miners, the explorers, the ethnographers, the missionaries, each of them had their own stories, and they intersect then with the Aboriginal people, but then they spread out all over the place, influencing the rest of the world, really. But then the end of that, uh, that was a book, the end of that book was all of their stories are really my telling of their stories so that I have my own story that's being told through the telling of all these other stories. And I need to simply, at the end of this, simply say, I'm really making this all up as well. And I need to be aware of that. I'm not giving the authentic story story. I'm just giving my version of all these stories. And that's really what we do. That's part of what we do as scholars. Uh, we're, we're taking information, we're giving it some sense of coherence when it doesn't have coherence. And then we pass that on through our own tradition in order to perpetuate our own ideas. So that's what storytelling is all about. It's this sort of uh, attempting to see in a positive light the creative encounters that we have with our materials and that we have, um, we, we engage in a certain amount of construction as we do that. But when we take that constructive liberty, we, unlike writers of fiction, have the responsibility of at least charting what we did in terms of our sources. So that's what story tracking is all about. What you're saying, too, also in relation to what you were referencing is not tracking the sort of authentic story, is that even just our own existing in the world and telling certain narratives about our experience is very much the same thing, right? It's not just an academic approach, really, because any sort of experience or narrative is certainly rooted in a variety of contexts yes, and yes, has a number yes. of contingencies. So I think it's helpful to remember, too, just when, when we are doing that kind of work, that it's not, some, it's not a, any, any sort of attempt to be disingenuous in any way. Right, right. Yeah. Yeah, I did a book a couple of years ago with the title Creative Encounters, Appreciating Difference. And what I really wanted to do there was to say that we shouldn't attempt to nullify difference. It's in the appreciation of difference that we're all enriched. I really wanted that to, to sort of take this story tracking idea and project it on the world generally, because I think we are super intolerant of difference right now in society and across the world. You know, we hate difference. We hate people who are different from us. So I want to really say, you know, it's in the appreciating of difference and our creative encounters, which means we're constructing them in the encounter, but we're also constructing ourselves in that encounter. And that's it. So it's a very creative interaction. The thing that distinguishes academics from folk who do this is that I think academics have the responsibility of saying, I have to be true to my sources. And, and, I, and I have to give uh, myself a lot of attention to, am I representing at least the sources as accurately as I possibly can? And are those sources reliable? That's kind of the, the chart I went through and attempting to go from Eliade all the way to that Aboriginal person is to say, you know, it's not just that your source is there, uh, and you can rely on that because that's a mistake I made in simply quoting Eliade. I didn't look up that source, you know, so Eliade wasn't reliable because he just made it up. But we need then to, as as scholars, we really need to take all that very seriously.
Well, and I think that that get, gets back to Smith too, right? Because it is it is taking seriously the responsibility of the choices and the selections that we make in how we study groups of people. Right. Right. Yeah, Smith Smith really said that scholars should be relentlessly self-conscious. So, you know, there's some aspects of that that uh I mean, his focus on place I find needs some critique, but it isn't a it isn't a firm holding to place. It's that we take temporary stances on things and then being relentlessly self-conscious allows us then a certain relativity to the places that we stand. And and I just, my, my own work is I just like to get rid of the whole notion of place altogether and see it more as utterly dynamic, as always moving. Yes. No, I think you're, I think you're right about that, which I would really love to unpack more, but I'm also now looking at the clock and seeing that we are yeah. coming up on an hour. But I feel sure. like well, yeah, once you get to talking about Smith's work, it can run off in, in a number of directions. Before we wrap up, sure. I know that you've actually been quite prolific in the past few years, especially. I wonder if you could tell us uh, about, I know you mentioned earlier about one project you're working on, but what other things you might have on the horizon? Oh, on the horizon. What I've been doing is some experimental work in which I'm trying to work on topics that are important and interesting to me, but written for a slightly more general audience. And to combine that work, uh, that writing, with my own creative work, which is photography. So I did a little book. I've actually been just self-publishing these because I don't want to waste the time to to find a publisher, but I, I did a I did a an example of this called on photography. So I simply looked at uh, I read a whole lot of the history of theories of photography and ways of understanding and appreciating photography, and then wrote oh it was like twenty essays. Uh, they were all limited to like eight hundred and fifty words, and then matched each one of those with an eight by 10 photographs so that it's a, I call them art books. They're eight and a half by 11 horizontal. So they're landscape rather than portrait style. And then the writing is double column on the one side and the photo on the other. So, so it's this combination then of more creative writing and then the more artful creative work of photography. The one I'm working on right now is called On Moving, and it is, it's turned out to be slightly different in that I can't contain my essays to 850 words. Uh, I just can't do it. So that at this point, I've got about, well, I've, it's a small book at this point. It's like 50,000. It'll probably be about 60,000 words on like 25 or 30 different topics related to moving. This is really in the, in the Proper Study of Religion book. The final chapter is my exploration of my own specific understanding of what a proper study of religion ought to be, and it's based in human self-moving. And in writing that, uh, focused on religion, I realized there's a whole lot more that I'm interested in writing about that I would, would supplement and fill out the perspectives I've written there that I think need, need more content, uh, more, more, more explanation. So that's what this really, that's what this book really is. So, so it is uh, then, and it will have photographs that I'm trying to do a photo project that when you do a still photograph, you really lose all the motion. So I'm trying to figure out ways of doing still photographs that are about motion, that are about movement and that capture then the sense of movement. So, so that's the, that's the artistic side of this project along then with the slightly less uh, academic writing, uh, but still fully resourced and uh, citations uh, for all of that as well. The, the little series that I want to do is called Aesthetics of Impossibles, uh, because that's my whole notion that I've taken through sort of a lot of my work in the last few years, which is, uh, and, and, and that's developed in the Smith book as well, in the proper study book, which is that we have, as human beings, this ability to put two things together and call them the same, when we know they're not the same at all. Uh, and, and so it's exploring that in terms of so many of the aspects of human life 
that this whole series of little art books is going to be. So, you know, I hope to do one or more of those a year at this point. So, Yeah, that sounds fun, though. And yeah, just would be really interesting to see, you know, what, what things end up kind of coming up in in the different books, I would think. Right. Yep, that's it. Well, before we go, I will just remind everybody that this book that we've been discussing of yours is The Proper Study of Religion, Building on Jonathan Z. Smith. And it is actually the winner for the Award for Excellence in the Study of Religion, Analytical Descriptive Studies um, for the 2021 AAR Book Awards. And if I'm not mistaken, there will be a panel also on your book uh, this this fall. That's right. Is it AAR or NASA or both? It's both. That's right. It's the joint right. Yeah. As as my understanding, that has not been done before. So it's it's hosted by two stations, two groups in uh, the AAR, the one on comparison, one on body, and then by uh, uh, NAASR. So. That's as well. No, yeah. that'll be that'll be fascinating. So for anyone who's interested, you'll be there yeah. at the AAR this there. fall. For sure. You know, assuming it's not virtual, I guess, right? Um, right. Uh, <laughs> so can talk a lot more about this book. Thank you so much, Sam, for being here today. It's been an absolute pleasure getting to talk to you. Well, thank you. It's been a real pleasure. It's so good to see you again. And good luck to you. Thank you. The RSP is sponsored by the British Association for the Study of Religions, the North American Association for the Study of Religion, and the International Association for the History of Religions. The Religious Studies Project is produced by the Religious Studies Project Association, SCIO, a Scottish charitable incorporated organisation, charity number SC047750. Brought to you by Editor-in-Chief Andy Alexander and founding editors Chris Cotter and David Robertson. Our features are edited by Israel Dominguez and Savannah Finver, and our Opportunities Digest by Trevor Lynn. Audio editing by Alex Matthews and Nathan Springer. Podcast transcription by Ayesha Javid and Jacob Noblet. And social media managed by Candice Mixon. Don't forget, you can support the project by using our Amazon.com.co.uk and .ca links, or donating at patreon.com slash projectrs. And you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, iTunes, Instagram, and other portals. Thanks for listening.